What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today, we are gonna talk about things that I've changed my mind on over the years. And I just was chuckling because I was making a list and it depends what changed my mind about means. Uh, are we talking about things I've done a complete 180 on? The list will be a little bit smaller. If we're talking about things that I've just like shifted my mind about, then the list is literally endless. Uh, and I think that that's a good thing. I think that my, you know, stance on certain things has shifted a little bit. And, you know, if we if we look back to like when I first started personal training, you know, like a decade ago, over a decade ago now, um, then obviously there was a whole bunch of dumb shit that I learned that is 100% false. Uh, and I chose not to include that stuff, stuff like, oh, BCAAs don't do anything. Like, great. Like, I don't think you guys need a whole podcast on that. I didn't think that that would be particularly interesting. I think we all learn kind of, for lack of a more intellectual way of saying it, like a whole bunch of dumb shit when we start, you know, uh, BCAA carbs are bad, you know, like, come on, like uh, you don't need a podcast on that. Carbs are bad. BCAAs don't work. Like you don't need to like uh, you, six small meals. Don't boost your metabolism. Like uh, we don't need a podcast on that, I think, or I just don't think that that would be super interesting. So I'm going to pick five, five things I think I chose um, that I think will be a little bit more interesting. Some of which probably deserve their own podcast after kind of looking and thinking about them for a second one of which that is its own podcast already, um, but it, it will be a good conversation, I think. And uh, so I'm gonna do my best to be thorough with these topics, knowing that I'm tr gonna try to get through all five of them and that maybe some of them could have their own podcast. So if you're kind of thinking, okay, this probably could have a bit more nuance, like maybe it could, um, I'll do my best. We'll see where it goes. I didn't make many notes. And so we'll see what the tangent looks like um, when we dive into some of these topics. So the first topic is what the optimal amount of protein intake is for muscle growth, let's say. Um, and I and I chuckle because the first two things we're going to talk about have a similar thread where like the, uh, a paper came out. Let me back up a little bit. If you guys go on to any fit, fit fluencer, coach, whatever, and you type on their page, hey, how much protein should I eat for muscle growth? Unequivocally, you'll get some permutation of the answer, 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight or more whether that's translated to pounds, which is like roughly like 0.8 grams of uh, protein per pound of body weight, uh, up to one gram per pound of body weight, right? So in kilograms, that'd be like 1.6 to 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. Um, and I just, I laughed because like when this paper came out, it's a paper by Morton and colleagues in 2018, it's a meta-analysis. Um, it was like this paper that felt like the end of the discussion, you know what I mean? Before that paper came out, I'm sure we knew that this was like a ballpark. Like before 2018, what, what sort of protein recommendations was I giving? Probably similar, 0.8 grams to up to 1.2 grams. And I think we kind of knew there had been plenty of papers, it's not the first study on protein. Like, of course not, as a meta-analysis. So um, it, it, we kind of knew this already, but it was a, you know, because a meta-analysis is a study of studies, it's a slightly higher, more highly ranked uh, in the hierarchy of evidence. Um, and it almost was like, all right, case closed, right? And so it gave a lot of coaches this like ammunition to be like, hey, this is it. End of story, closed book, done deal, 1.6 grams per kilogram or more. Um, and, you know, that I don't think that that's a bad recommendation, by the way. Let's start with that. I don't think that that's wrong. Um, and I will say that if you are very interested in this topic a little bit more in depth, go listen to the Stronger by Science. Uh, I will link that episode in the description of the podcast. It's where I think Eric Trexler leads a segment where they talk about this study in particular, and that's where I'm going to be driving some of this discussion here. So if you're interested, you want a little bit more in depth on this topic, go listen to that. It's fantastically done. Eric is uh, wonderful. He does a really great job. But essentially what they did on that podcast, and what we're going to talk about here is a, is a kind of like a reanalysis of that paper and kind of like kind of putting it under the microscope a little bit more because this idea that it's like, hey, you know, 
basically what pe- the takeaway was, was like, hey, if you're under 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight, we see a, a decent amount of a drop off in benefit. And above 1.6 gram per kilogram, we see a, a uh, sorry, we see a drop off in benefit, meaning you get much worse benefit below 1.6 grams per kilogram. And above 1.6 grams per kilogram, we see almost like an asymptotic, like diminishing return. So this 1.6 gram per kilogram was seen as like a threshold of like, hey, once we're above this, there doesn't seem to be a ton more benefit. But below this, there does seem to be a drop off where you get significantly less benefit. So this is a really nice marker of like, hey, above this, you're good, but there's probably diminishing returns. And below this, we see a big, you know, a significant enough downside in which we would recommend going above that. And, you know, Eric, I believe did uh, what's called a leave out, a leave one out analysis, which is essentially like, because a meta-analysis is a study of studies, uh, a leave one out analysis is basically like going through and calculating the data again while removing one study at a time just to see if one study is really, like if you have data and that data says X and you take out one study out of like 10 studies that are giving you this end result, this data, this conclusion, and you take out one study and it does skew that data quite a bit, then that makes that data a little bit less reliable, right? It's like this one study apparently is skewing this, right? And obviously, technically, we would call that an outlier. None of the paper, none of the papers that were included in this study were statistically considered outliers. They were below that threshold. But I find it funny if you go and you watch the podcast, I recommend watching it on YouTube because there's some pretty decent uh, like um, pictures of the data sets. Uh, it actually looks like extremely underwhelming. Like this, the, the level of confidence with which people say 1.6 gram per kilogram of body weight is this threshold. If you actually looked at the data set plotted out, it doesn't really look that way. And it, it doesn't really look that way with as much confidence as we say it. Um, and so I, I believe Greg and Eric, they did a, a leave one out analysis and they found that there was one paper that if you took that paper out, then the 1.6 starts to cut this like threshold of 1.6 grams per kilogram kind of drops to like 1.2 grams per kilogram, which is like roughly 0.6 grams per pound ish. I think it's a little bit more. Um, And it just really wasn't as compelling of a paper in terms of like, if your takeaway is 1.6 grams per kilogram, yeah, it doesn't seem that we should be talking about it with as much confidence as we do. Um, especially when you took out that one paper. But even if you left that paper in, I I saw the data set just like plotted out and it just was like, huh, like this is the data from which we are deriving this level of confidence around this like 1.6 grams per kilogram. And it just made me take a step back and be like, well, well, maybe like, especially after doing this leave one out analysis, maybe again, the guys at Stronger by Science also came to this conclusion, of course, um, is that maybe we're a little bit too hard nosed about that number. And maybe it's actually lower than that from, you know, and when I say it is lower than that, I mean, this point from which above we see diminishing returns and below we see notable downside. That threshold is very likely lower. And so again, if you want a bit more of this, if you want a little bit more meat around this discussion, go check out their podcast. I don't want to steal the entire content there. They did a wonderful job breaking it down, but it is uh, probably more more the case if you're going to use this paper as the holy grail, it's probably more the case that that downside or that threshold is probably closer to like 1.2 grams per kilogram, which is like 0.66 grams per pound, um, which I got to tell you is awesome. That's awesome. I mean, anytime we can lower the bar and uh, find out that there's actually, uh, it's actually easier to get into that quote optimal range, it's amazing. 
Um, and so he, you know, what are the main takeaways here? Should you be actively reducing your protein intake? No. I'll tell you how this has affected me and then we'll move on to the next topic. How this has affected me is that if I have a client who's eating in that like 1.2 grams per pound, 1.2 to 1.4, let's say, it's no longer, in my opinion, an evidence-based um, position for me to nudge them to go higher. If I have a client who's happy in that 1.2 to 1.4 and they do not like eating more than that, there's no, I no longer can stand behind the fact that there is definitively a benefit to doing so, which is awesome. I can think of many clients who are like, you know, maybe you're in the 150 pound range and you're eating like 150 or you're eating 100 grams of protein. That's like 0.66, right? Two thirds. That's 0.66 grams per pound, which is like roughly that like 1.2 gram per kilogram. And so they're really happy there. And, you know, maybe we have a discussion about, you know, maybe previously I might have had, might have had a discussion of like, oh, going up in protein to like closer to, you know, 130, 125, 130, get closer to that like 0.8 mark. Uh, is There's a benefit there. That's where we th see the threshold continues to go up of, of how much benefit you're going to get from more protein. Just don't feel that that's an evidence-based position to take anymore. Uh, I think if you have some, again, I don't. you should not be actively decreasing your protein intake unless you don't like how much protein you're eating and you'd enjoy your life more, adhere better, and just, again, overall have a better life if you ate a little bit less protein, had a little bit more room for carbs and fats. Uh, again, protein's great. It has a high thermic effect of food. It's relatively satiating compared to the other macros. Um, nothing wrong with protein. It's great. And, and there is probably more benefit to more protein. There just seems to be like where the point is where there's a drop off in benefit seems to be a little bit lower than we suspected. Um, and so again, that, I think that that's fantastic. It's way more inclusive. There's a lot of people out there who don't actually love eating a gram per pound of protein. And if they could get near optimal results with less, it would drastically improve their adherence, uh, but also just general enjoyment with their food. I think that that's awesome. And and I used to think that I was someone who's like, no, I, I to be honest with you, I usually eat more than a gram of per pound of protein. I weigh 190-ish pounds, and I'm usually north of 2,000 grams of protein. But more recently, I've had some days in like the 150, 160, which is still, you know, close to like 0.75, 0.8-ish. Um, and it's been really nice to not have any feeling that creeps up in me where you're like, you're missing out, you're missing out on gains. Like, that's been really liberating, even for me, who's like a, a more of a, I, I, like in terms of palatability, I do enjoy protein, and it isn't difficult for me to hit a gram per pound. I've had days where I'm in like that 140 to 160 range and I'm like, you know what, dude? Like you're, you're not actually missing out on anything. Like you can feel just fine about this. Um, and that's been nice. And so if you guys want a bit more detail on that, go listen to the podcast. Uh, I'll link it in the description below. It's more like an hour. This was like 10 minutes. If you guys want to look more, I highly recommend watching it on YouTube. Uh, some of those data sets, you're like, you scratch your head and you're like, yeah, but these people talk about it with such certainty and this is what they're referencing. Um, and, and, when we transition to the next topic, which is going to be training volumes, um, it's a very similar topic. And so we'll move on to the next topic, which is things I've changed my mind about, and that's training volumes. Like how much training, how many sets per muscle group per week you need to be doing to make gains. Now, my literally, my last podcast, actually, there might be one in between this, so maybe two episodes ago with Brian Borstein, we talk about this topic ad nauseum. I think we go for like 75 minutes just on this topic. So please go listen to it. I'm going to give you guys some nuts and bolts here, hopefully to whet your appetite enough to go check that out. Um, but it, again, it, it comes from it comes from a topic by which a lot. if you go on any fitness influencer, coach, and you're like, hey, how many sets per muscle group per week do I need? Unequivocally, 
100% of the time, actually maybe even more so than the protein one, you will get the same answer. Something like, quote, something like 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week. And that is derived from a paper by 2017 by Schoenfeld and colleagues. And again, meta, actually not a meta-analysis. Uh, actually, it might've been a meta-analysis. I can go back and check, but there's an entire podcast on it that I just did with Brian. That I think you guys will absolutely love. I think it is a meta-analysis. Um, and basically, the, the, you know, if, if nobody reads the whole paper, I'm not like, to, I back in 2017, I was not, um, from a literature standpoint, I was not literate enough to actually go through this paper and come to any of my own conclusions. It was just over my head. And so it was really nice, clean cut, packaged conclusion of like, hey, what's optimal? Somewhere between 10 to 20 sets per week per muscle group. And again, if you go on any influencers page, any coach page, this is what you're gonna hear. And again, I'm not shitting on those people because that was me too. I didn't read the paper. And so I, I said something very, I mean, if you go through any Q&A where I've ever been asked that question, you'll hear that. Um, more recently, I've had some issues with it. Not, not because I think that that is wrong, but some issues with how that is applied. And you can listen to that in the podcast. But um, it seems like with a closer look, there's more to this paper than just this conclusion of 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week. Um, that you will hear from every coach, you know, under the sun. Um, a couple of things that I'll note, because there again, there's a whole podcast on this, is that in that 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week, they counted all indirect work equally. What I mean is that like one set of squats counted as one set for quads, one set for hamstrings, which by the way, don't even really do much at all in the squat, and one set for glutes. You know, one set of pull-ups counted as one set of back and one set of biceps. Now, a couple issues with that one is like, you're counting, the biceps do work in a pull-up, but do they work enough to get an entire set allocated to them? Uh, also, back is many muscles. When you do a pull-up, you know, what about your lats versus your rear delts, your upper back, right? Your teres, uh, you know, within the lat, we have multiple divisions and are they all counting the same? And so, again, because in order to do like actual research, you have to have some limit, like, there have to be some limitations in, in order for you to be a little bit more inclusive with the studies that you're making. And it's really difficult for you to uh, kind of differentiate divisions of a certain muscle when it comes to this. You, If you did that, you would never be able to have, like there's just never gonna be enough, uh, there's never gonna be research out there that breaks it down to that uh, level of specificity. And so again, I, there's, there's nothing against the paper. Paper was done just fine. Um, but I think the application is kind of lacking in terms of, how people understand that the study was done. And what I mean by like the indirect work is like, if I said you need to do 15 sets of biceps, let's say 12 sets of biceps per week to grow them. Uh, in my group program right now, we are doing three sets of direct bicep work. We're doing one exercise for three sets. We're doing no cheat curls, this mesocycle, and it's one exercise with three sets. You might say, well, I'm only doing three sets of biceps. I heard I need to do 10 to 20 sets. By the nature of how those 10 to 20 sets are calculated within the study, you might be doing way more than you think because by the way that that's calculated, all of your back work, so all of your pulling exercise, your rows, your overhead pulls, your in the middle sort of pulls, they all count for biceps. So if you're doing nine sets of back, maybe you're doing three sets of an overhead pull, you're doing three sets of a horizontal row, and you're maybe doing three sets of something in the middle, like a, like a high cable pull, something like that. That would be nine sets of biceps. 
nine sets of biceps plus the three sets of direct work you're doing, you're doing you're doing 12 sets of biceps, which is would check the box of 10 to 20 sets per week. So that's a big one that I think people aren't understanding that that would be 12 sets of biceps and that you don't actually need 12 sets of direct bicep if you're using this 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week as your parameter. Um, also a couple just like little things that I would share about this study is that even the study itself has a quote in there that says, North of nine sets per muscle group per week and below nine sets per muscle group per week did not show statistical significance, which I find just like a crazy quote to be in a study. So basically they're saying above nine sets and below nine sets didn't show statistical significance. Like when that line was drawn at nine cents, nine sets, those who did more and those who did less, it didn't reach statistical significance, which I find to be a crazy quote to be in a paper from which we derive that the optimal amount of growth would be between 10 and 20. Um, also, if you calculate all the data, if you look at the people who did between five and nine sets per muscle group per week, they got they saw 84% of the, of the growth that you know we deem optimal. So in just five to nine sets per muscle group per week, you can get 84% of the muscle growth. That's, that's epic. That's epic. That could be a, as low as a, a quarter of the amount of work. If you're doing 20 sets per muscle group and you could do five and still get 84%, I know I'm using the extremes there to make a point, but shit, man, if you could do a quarter of the work at 84% of the gains, like how amazing is that? How inclusive does this now become? Um, and so just reframing my thoughts around how many sets you actually have to do, I think it is still a very nuanced topic. That's why we have a fucking 75 minute podcast on it. I don't think it's like clean cut, like, hey, just do way less volume. Um, but I think that somewhere in here is at least a general thread that this is a big win for people who have less time, regular people, everybody listening to this podcast who's not a professional bodybuilder, that you can still make amazing gains with less if you do certain things. And, you know, if you want to learn more about how to make the most of your time in the gym, get the best gains in a little less time, that is essentially what the podcast with Brian is about. So we talk about this topic of how much volume you need. We look a little bit more in depth in this study and some other studies. And then we kind of give some general recommendations of like how to get more out of your training time, like how to get more out of less time. So go check that out. It'll be in the description. The next topic absolutely needs its own podcast and I have it scheduled. I literally, as I was making the notes, I texted um, my friends, Buddy Your Macros, Heidi and Natalie, and I knew that they'd be perfect for this podcast. And that is the idea that fat loss will unequivocally, all the time, improve your life. Um, I think when I started out, I just assumed everybody wanted to lose fat and that losing fat would improve everybody's life, make everybody happier, make everybody more physically fit and, and make everybody objectively healthier in terms of biomarkers. And it, that fat loss was the route to, to life improvement, to quality of life improvement. Or at least I, at least I wasn't as, I didn't, I didn't scrutinize, I didn't, I didn't wrestle with that question enough. Um, I, I think, I guess if you asked me at the day, you know, you're like, hey, Jordan, do you think fat loss will improve everybody's life? I probably wouldn't have said yes. Um, I, I would be, you know, skeptical of those sorts of absolute languages, like, ap you know, all the time in all contexts for all people. Um, but I am becoming more and more skeptical of that in, in absolute. Um, I just think after working with hundreds of people for the last decade, I've had, I've, I've helped hundreds and hundreds of people lose fat. And it, does not always improve their quality of life. Um, in fact, it might even be the case that 
depending on the context, like it can be worse. Uh, I'm not gonna say that it is always worse. What I'm trying to say is that you absolutely shouldn't be assuming whether you're a coach or a regular person, you know, somebody who thinks that they would like to lose fat, that this is going to improve your life. I think that that assumption in absolute is one that I would not make. Um, and I was gonna say like, I, you know, I, was, I wanted to maybe be a bit contrarian here and say that it's more likely the opposite, that that's not true. Um, but shit, man, I'm way more cognizant than ever that we should be looking more into uh, approaching this from a what's realistically going to make my life better, not an assumption that, you know, my happiest life is a leaner body. Um, and so, uh, you know, again, I think this could be its own podcast. I'm going to touch on a couple of things. I think I think if uh, from a like an actual health marker perspective, when we're looking at objective health markers, whether it's like blood lipids or blood pressure or blood glucose or inflammatory markers or, you know, just whatever, risk factors of cardiovascular disease, like things that like objectively we can look at and be like, hey, like these are things that can maybe be improved. I think fat loss can absolutely be something that can improve those things. And so I think if we're looking at like, hey, fat loss can improve my life, for those listening to this who are like, hey, I have certain risk factors that fat loss is very highly likely something that would help that, I, I'm, I'm on board. I think that, that if you're like, if that's your argument as to like why you think fat loss will improve your life, t- totally possible that I think that that's a good plan um, or at least something very much worth considering. Um, you know, if you're at a state of maybe health, maybe in a, a certain body size where you think fat loss will give you better, like, physical fitness and will allow that to open doors for your life to do things physically that you enjoy. You're like, hey, my joints hurt and I can't play tennis or I can't go on hikes. I can't go for walks. I can't go running, can't play soccer. And I, and, I, and literally losing fat will take some of that stress off my joints, improve my cardiovascular fitness, which I think is a two-pronged approach. Fat loss will do that for some people who, for which fat loss can give cardiovascular benefits. Um, obviously improving cardiometabolic adaptations in terms of like doing cardio and getting more fit, that is a different thing. Um, I think that this makes a ton of sense. You know, if you're like, you know, uh, at a body size where you think losing some fat will allow you to do things physically that will improve your quality of life, fuck yeah, I'm totally on board with that. Like 1,000% on board with that. And I will, I do not want to, you know, I will only use, yeah, I was going to use myself as an example, but I really don't like doing that because that, that isn't exactly the, you know, what I will say is this doesn't need to be only something in an extreme sense. I will say that at my heaviest, I was probably 220 pounds, so like 30, 35 pounds heavier than I am right now, depending on the day. I couldn't play soccer as well as I liked. My cardiovascular fitness was was dog shit, 30 pounds heavier, Um you know, technically overweight, um, and a no pity party for me. This is not what we're doing here. I'm just saying, even in that regard, like I, moved, when I moved to Texas, I was 220 pounds, and immediately we started playing soccer because we wanted to meet people. And I looked at Jenna, and I was like, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to stay at this weight because I, it wasn't something where I felt cardiovascularly fit. I was, exo- I remember the first game, within the first two minutes, I subbed myself out, and I was like, this isn't my happiest life here. I think I would be happier because it would, you know, maybe losing some weight because it would allow me to do this thing that I really like physically a bit better and I would enjoy it more. Um, so I think that those categories are fine. I think another one might be like, hey, confidence, uh, you know, maybe improved confidence from fat loss. But I think that this is a tricky one. I mean, where are we deriving confidence from? Uh, are we deriving confidence because, you know, being smaller, I feel like I fit a societal norm better and I, you know, deserve love and I'm getting all this external praise and I'm deriving all this, this these, you know, 
more superficial good feelings from the way I look, which kind of highlight maybe a little bit of a discussion here about why that might be. Why am I deriving a lot of my good feelings from the way I look? Um, so I think a lot of people are like, oh, I got more confident. It's like, yeah, we, we could explore that a little bit, I think. Um, this is what two years of therapy has done to me. But I think being curious about why that is, like why, what in me felt like, you know, I needed to be smaller to feel good about myself. Um, I think that there's room to be curious there. And I just think that, again, that the, that can totally happen, by the way. Some people are going to be like, I got more confident. like, and, and that can be a very good thing. But I also think it can be maybe even reinforcing some things that, are holding you back from your best life. Maybe how how much we value how we look and the external and how much body fat we have and our body size and all of that stuff. Maybe um, there's room for finding confidence without that being such a big variable. That's all I'll say. Um, so again, I think there are two categories where, if, you know, like I think it's more highly likely that fat loss can be helpful in improving quality of life where, that, where you're like, have some objective health markers that maybe aren't the best and improving that like literally just decreases your risk of dying. Um, I think that that makes a ton of sense. And also if, you know, your maybe your body size or body fatness is stopping you physically from doing something you want to do or doing it in the way you'd like to do it. And, you know, by losing some fat, that that can be a route to doing that uh, in a way that improves your quality of life. Maybe it's going for hikes, going for runs, playing sport, you know, playing uh, whatever, playing with your kids, playing with your grandkids, whatever. Um, I love that. Um, but if it's, you know, there are, again, I, I don't want to go too deep on this. Like, there are a lot of people listening to this podcast who are objectively healthy, who don't fall into those two categories. Your blood work checks out, you're objectively healthy. Physically fit, there's probably not anything that you can't do that are hyper-focused on being leaner. And I've helped, and I've worked with a ton of them. Like, the majority of my clients probably fall into this category of, like, you're pretty darn healthy from an objective, like, what we can see physiologically. And physical fitness-wise, like, it's not like you're yearning to do something that you absolutely can't do, and this is something that you think will help you do that. There's a lot of people who are looking to lose fat because they just want to look better. Now, I'm not shitting on that as, like, an independent variable. Like, that can that can be something that exists within you. But if it is the only thing you care about and you are already, like, objectively healthy and physically able to do things that, you know, let's say able-bodied, like, um, I'm just not sure... And I just want to be clear, like, I'm not saying that it can't improve your health or your quality of life. I'm just not sure that it will do that 100%. And sometimes um, I would go so far as to say that with a lot of these clients that, have, that I've worked with who were in this category, that the better, more life-changing quality of life improvements have actually come from deciding to focus on other things, working on relationship with food, working on relationship with self and body. Um you know, working on and finding exercise modalities that they enjoy, maybe just like, you know, um, learning to that, you know, changing their perspective on body image, let's say. Um, I'm not saying giving up on fat loss, but I, I guess you could say that. Um, it's tricky, and that's what I mean. It is no longer something I think is a blanket thing that will improve everyone's life. I do not think that that is the case. Um I think a lot of people need to really question why they want to lose fat. What is the goal behind losing fat? Does the type of changes that I need to make to lose fat, do those actually lead to a net improvement in quality of life? Or am I giving up things that I would really enjoy? Um, you know, I'm no longer a f like, a like associating myself with like, I, I help people lose weight. It's like I help people use nutrition and fitness to live their best life, whatever that is. 
Uh, and it's not always losing fat. I think that that is kind of where I'm going to end this now because I do think it can be an, a larger topic. But um, yeah, that's something that like I've explored a lot more with clients lately. Um, and sometimes it can be hard for people to let that part of them that's always been focused on fat loss, let that part die. You know, there's like a mourning phase of like, the you that's been so focused on like, I need to be smaller since you were a little kid, you know, since you were a teen in school, college, wedding, having kids, whatever, the part of you that that decided that he or she needed to be smaller, actually letting that part of you die is an important part of this process in actually having a better quality of life where you're not so hyper-focused on that. So again, I'll leave that for a slightly longer podcast, but um, again, that doesn't mean, uh, doesn't mean it can't improve your quality of life, just something I've taken a step back from assuming. The next one, I think we have two more. We're, uh, we're doing 30 minutes. Actually, we're pretty good here. Uh, the next two are how important biomechanics and technique are. Now, I'll, I'll give a little context here. I, th- I still think having good technique is massively important. And I still think learning about anatomy and biomechanics is I- immensely important as a coach. It's something intellectually that's very stimulating for me. I enjoy it. I'm sort of, you know, I took all the N1 courses. I went to the uh, the N1 practical. It's something I, I am immersed in learning more about every day. Um, and it's been, let's be real, this idea of like biomechanics and anatomy and like how, like different divisions of the lat, like it's been booming for the last like five years, I'd say. Um, ever since, you know, N1 has been around for longer than that, but N1 probably brought this to the surface of like something that we're being like way more specific with learning, way more about different divisions of the lat, different divisions of the pec, different divisions of the bicep, um, and how we, can we train all of those specifically. And, and that's been incredibly intellectually stimulating. I've enjoyed it a ton, but... Um, I will get to the butt in a second. I will also say that if you're a coach, it is your absolute duty to have an understanding of this stuff. If you are programming for clients, you sure as shit better understand this at least on a foundational level. Um, but social media has turned this into like an absolute language factory. And, and, and something I'll just briefly touch on in terms of social media is like, it's a very competitive space now. I mean, everyone's on social media. Everyone's making content. There's a million fitness people on social media all making content, all competing for your attention. When that competition gets really great, you know what rises to the top. It is absolute language. It is yes and no. It is binary thinking. It is black and white topics. It is, you know, this exercise does this and this only. This exercise does none of this and this exercise is trash and this exercise is the best. This absolute language, this, um, you know, lack of nuance absolutely rises to the top and that's because it feeds our innate disposition as humans to be attracted to that to want a simplified answer and and that's okay like we're not going to change anytime soon as humans of course most of us are going to be after like you know it's it's simpler to be like oh this exercise does this trains lats doesn't train anything else this exercise okay it's it's for your clavicular pec and that's it um you got to have your arm on this angle for rear delts and this angle for upper back and yeah, it, it, you know, uh, in some ways that that makes it seem more simplistic. It's not, oh, this is this and nothing else. This is that and nothing else. Um, you know, and a lot of social media will will make it seem like that's the case. And if there's any nuance, it's buried in a caption that nobody reads. People are, oh, I put the nuance in the caption. It's like, okay, like, you know nobody reads that. Like, And I'm not like, bla- you know, I, I've, I've, I've gone through the blame phase of like blaming people for doing this, but they are rewarded. And so how are they, you know, I can't really blame people for doing that using some of the, you know, I can to some degree, but you know, it's just a social media strategy and that's great. Like if you want to go do that, I you know, whatever, man, I support everybody's decision to do whatever they want. Um, 
You know, and when people talk about the algorithm, the algorithm is just a proxy for what humans want. The algorithm is just giving you what you want. Um, and so at the end of the day, it's mostly just that people are after this. That is the real problem, uh, this sort of binary thinking. Anyway, not let's not go too deep down that rabbit hole. Um, what have I changed my mind about, about, about biomechanics? A little bit of how much this matters um, and a little bit of how I'm discussing this on social media. Um, you know, a lot of these changes in terms of like, hey, you got to have your arm on this angle if you want to work rear delts. Hey, you got to work your arm on this angle if you want to work the thoracic lat. Hey, you got to make sure that your uh, torso is in this position so you can lengthen the rec fem. Like a lot of that is true. I mean, it is true. Um, but how much does it matter and how much of your emotion and feeling of self-efficacy with certain movements, your feeling of, of competency with your lifts, how much should you be giving to that? Um, and again, I think that there's like, uh, we'll get to that in a second, but like a lot of people are, you know, this like new fear unlocked. Like a lot of people are all of a sudden getting like in this immense state of anxiety around their technique and their performance or their technique and how they're performing movements that they're either not enjoying their training as much or it's coming at the cost of things like effort. They're like, well, I, you know, my arm is moving slightly in this little different plane that it's supposed to, like by fucking five degrees. And so, you know, I got to lower the weight so that I can get it perfect. Um, and and I think that, that the people who are talking on social media in this way, very absolute language, would probably be like, oh no, it's actually, you're, you're probably okay. You probably don't need to do that. But that's not what's being communicated. Um, and so there are a lot of people who are obsessing over tiny, tiny, minute details in lieu of things like effort, let's say. Now, I know that that's a false dichotomy, right? Uh, can you, and I'm not anti-optimal. I fucking love learning about all this stuff. And I have a group with over 700 people where I talk about technique and we work on their technique. And I, you know, sometimes will let them know that I'm nitpicking. But I think what's missing is an understanding of where this falls in the hierarchy. Like if I give a technique technique cue to somebody, I'm like, hey, I think maybe you could tuck the elbow a little bit more on this press. I will also add how important I think that is so that you know that this isn't a huge deal, that you weren't doing it bad before and getting no gains. And now when you fix it, then you'll get all the gains. Now you're finally making gains. We need to understand where this falls in the hierarchy. I'm all for working on technique and learning about the body. Just keep it in context. Like we need to help people understand how important certain things are so that they're not having an a disproportionate reaction or disproportionate emotional attachment to doing something quote unquote perfectly. Um, You know, the example that I think about is I'm doing an exercise in my program right now. It is a row that is basically a perpendicular row. Like I'm rowing perpendicular to my torso. I'm rowing horizontally, let's say. And my arms are roughly 30 to 45 degrees up off my body. If you're watching me on YouTube, it's probably about here. I posted it the other day and I struggled to know what I was going to call it because the truth is, you know, you could call it a rear delt row because, you know, that's what's all the rage right now as to being so fucking hyper specific about what you're working. And I thought to myself, yeah, you know, biomechanically, does this fit a puzzle piece of a rear delt row? Sure. But I'm getting a ton of upper back also. I'm getting a ton of my thoracic lats and I'm getting some rear delts for sure. It just got me thinking about, fuck, man. Like, if you want to build a great back, like, you want to be pulling from overhead, you want to be pulling horizontally, you want to be pulling from somewhere in the middle. Sometimes you want your elbows flared. Sometimes you want them tucked. Sometimes in the middle. Yes. Can you be more specific? Absolutely. As a coach, as a client, should you understand some of those nuances? Absolutely. If you have a client who specifically wants to work a certain muscle, should you know how to 
attack that muscle? Absolutely. Um, but I'm just, I just think that we've gotten to the point where we're not actually also having this, the discussion of how important XYZ adjustments to your technique is. Um, and I think that just as long as we're adding that, I'm all for it. Because the truth is, in the, like these little changes, sometimes they're very low cost. Like we're not talking about like, like I will I will seed the point that these are very low cost changes, like tucking your elbow a little bit or lining up the cable a little bit better for your triceps. Like those don't cost you very much, you know, taking the cable, pulling it down one click so it lines up a little bit better. That's a very low cost option or a very low cost change uh, that will cause some improvement. But we need to accept that these are very low cost, very low benefit. And that doesn't mean you don't do them, but it just means you keep them in fucking context where somebody isn't having analysis paralysis, having anxiety, not enjoying their training anymore because they think their elbow degree is off by five, you know? Um, and so that's my take on that. I think I, I, I've, I am, I love working on technique with clients, but I will always let you know how important what we're talking about is so you can decide how much emotion to give it. You know, if you're doing a, an RDL and your your lumbar spine is completely flexed and rounded and you're uh, just doing like this like question mark stripper deadlift where you're certainly gonna like injure your lower back over time, we're gonna have a talk about it and I'm going to tell you that that's most likely unacceptable to do over the long term. If you're like, hey, I'm trying to target my rear delts but my elbow's on 47 degrees, not 42 degrees. What should I do? We're gonna have a talk about that, but you're sure as shit gonna know that this is a totally different conversation where it matters a whole fuckload less. Um, cool, so something we could talk about another time. Maybe it's own podcast for sure. And the last one we're gonna talk about today, there's plenty more on this list. I wanna keep it under 45 minutes. We probably won't do that, but is that cardio will kill your gains. This one kind of, I'll start with, comes in tandem with the lower volume. And what I mean by that is that like, I used to think that, well, it is true that you only have a finite amount of recover, recovery capacity at adaptive capacity. Like there's what I mean is there's only so much you can do and recover from it. And there's only so much you can do and adapt to it. You have a finite amount of that. And if somebody is working really hard on hypertrophy, chances are I thought at one point that they were maxing out their recoverability. It's like, you didn't have much room for much else. That's what I had suspected. But that's probably back when I thought you were needed to train for like at least 90 minutes, four to six times a week. Um, of course you don't have any more recoverability because that's a metric fuckload of training, a ton of stimulus that requires a ton of adapt adaptive rec and recovery capacity from your body. Um, if you're doing, like if you're an absolute avid bodybuilder who's training with the sole goal in life to get the most jacked, no matter the cost, you're probably training that much. Um, and if you are, you probably don't have a ton of room for extra higher intensity cardio. You probably can just walk just fine. Um, but as I've learned that you probably don't need as much training as you think to get at least a very high percentage of the optimal gains, you actually have some room for some cardio without it fucking killing your gains and causing you to not recover. Um, I have a podcast with a doctor, Alyssa Olenek. Uh, it's a wonderful podcast. It's I think she reposted it on her podcast actually because I think it was just a wonderful chat with the two of us. I'll put that in the link below or in the description below. You guys can go check that out. But I, I think it is still true that you have a finite amount of recovery capacity. You can't just do five days of distance running and five days of hypertrophy and five days of jujitsu and expect to kind of recover and, and adapt to all of that optimally. Um, but I definitely think that the, we are at the very least overblowing this interference effect that it, if it exists, it exists in a way less of a magnitude than we once thought. Um, and if we're talking about doing a moderate amount of this stuff, like, of course, like, the amount, 
that you're doing something and the level of intensity that you're doing it are two variables that are very important. If you're like, hey, can I add one day of walking, which is a low frequency and a low intensity, you could basically add that to any program, you're gonna be just fine. But again, if you increase the frequency, you, now you're doing three days and you're doing um, sprint workouts or whatever it is, maybe long distance running, think something that's going to require or cause more fatigue, higher frequency, more fatigue, Obviously that's filling up your recovery bucket a bit more. That means that you'll have less room for other stuff and maybe more likely to have that overflow and you are you know, not able to adapt and, and overtrain or whatever that is, be you know overreached and whatever terminology you wanna use. But I do think that this, you know, if you're somebody out there, even if you're in my program, which is like slightly more geared to getting more optimal gains, we train four times a week for about 60 minutes. Chances are you could add some cardio to that. Like if someone's like, hey, I wanna add some cardio. I, my answer will almost never be, hey, that's gonna interfere with your gains. Um, the only answer I would give is, you know that something's interfering with your gains, let's say, if you are unable to progress at those lifts, let's say. So if someone's like, hey, I'd I wanna add X to on top of my hypertrophy programming. Is that too much? Or how do I know that that's too much? My answer would be is, if you are finding out that you are showing up to your hypertrophy workouts so fatigued, maybe sore, or maybe just like um, from a neurological standpoint, you are in a lesser state, like you're less motivated to train, that could fall under fatigue in some way, that your performance level suffers. Like if you are finding that you're unable to perform to the degree in which you can progress in your hypertrophy sessions, that's a really good proxy for this is interfering with my gains. Not complicated. If you're not progressing in your lifts, right, week to week, at least a little bit, most of the time, again, a little bit, most of the time, sometimes you don't progress, sometimes you even regress, but if you're finding like a consistent regression or at least a consistent inability to progress, chances are you are, should at least consider if you're doing too much. Um, I've actually come to the point where like, I think that at least walking, you know, eight to 12,000 steps per day on average is something that, um, will actually probably get you better gains, um, just from a recovery standpoint and, maybe from a work capacity standpoint, um, obviously good for weight management and cardiovascular health, um, but certainly I'm off the, the mantle of cardio will interfere with your gains. It almost certainly won't unless you're doing trying to do an extreme of both. Um, and, you know, if, you, if you're doing a hypertrophy program and that is your main focus and you add a moderate one to two days of cardio on top of that, as long as you're fueling optimi optimally, you're eating enough and sleeping enough, I think you're gonna be just fine and I don't think it will have any impact on your uh, on your like hypertrophy goals. I'm gonna end it there. There were a couple other ones. I'll mention them here. Maybe I'll do another episode or I'll give each of these their own. Uh, three other ones were my thoughts on anti-diet culture, which I think that I have a podcast with JB and Rosario, which I think is wonderful. It's kind of updates our thoughts on this like anti-diet culture um, approach. Um, pre and post-workout nutrition, at the very least pre-workout nutrition. I feel like I feel like we're kind of off the anabolic window stuff. Uh, I still get people like, what's an optimal pre-workout nutrition? Like mostly doesn't fucking matter. Um, and another one that I think definitely deserves its own podcast, which I kind of have, uh, is how important the genetic differences, how important genetic differences are when we talk about predisposition for fat gain, like things about your genetics that make you more or less likely to gain fat over the lifetime. I think that those are actually underrated. And when we talk about obesity as a disease that we need to actively acknowledge that there are big differences between us. Um, and so I have a podcast on set point theory, which I think goes into this discussion quite a bit, at least enough where you'll have a good understanding as to like, what are some of these and how do they play a role in our predisposition, predisposition for fat gain? So 
Um, again, hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a question, you can always DM me uh, and I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.